Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Attorney General Barr, has the President or anyone at the White House ever asked or suggested that you open an investigation of anyone? Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh... Yes or no? Could you, could you repeat that question? I will repeat it. Yeah. Has the President or anyone at the White House ever asked or suggested that you open an investigation of anyone? Yes or no, please, sir. Um president or anybody else seems you'd remember something like that and be able to tell us yeah but I'm, I'm trying to grapple with the word suggest I mean uh, there have been discussions of, of matters out there that uh, they have not asked me to open an investigation but perhaps they've suggested I don't know I wouldn't say suggest hinted I, I don't know inferred you don't know Okay. This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa podcast. The New York Times bombshell report that the Justice Department subpoenaed and seized data from Apple on the communications of at least two Democratic members of Congress in 2017 and 2018 has confirmed what many have known for a long time. The Justice Department under Bill Barr and Jeff Sessions existed not to serve the people of this country, but was rather subverted and corrupted into another arm of the Trump octopus, serving as its investigative arm. The breaking news we begin with tonight is this blockbuster piece of reporting by the New York Times. It says Trump Justice Department officials investigated the electronic communications of Democrats in Congress, all in the hunt for leaks of classified information. All in all, according to the Times, the DOJ under both attorney generals, Jeff Sessions and William Barr, requisitioned data on a dozen people connected to the Democrats on the House Intelligence Committee, including Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell, with more likely to come as the dust settles on these revelations. The Times reported that James Comey, as well as Andrew McCabe, were also investigated. This is not about Adam Schiff and myself. It's about a president rewarding his friends corruptly through the Department of Justice, as he did with Michael Flynn and Roger Stone, and punishing his perceived enemies. And my fear is that he may not have been successful this time in locking up his perceived enemies, but a more corrupt or Donald Trump in the White House again may not be as patient and may just skip the Department of Justice and its processes and just order his lieutenants to lock up his political opponents. The Trump administration took an extraordinary step while investigating leaks of classified information related to the Russia investigation early on in his term. Federal officials even went so far as to subpoena the iPhone maker for communications data on the aides and family members of the two Democrats, including a minor. The leak hunt began with the FBI sending a subpoena to Apple in February of 2018, which included a gag order, which meant that Apple was prohibited by law from alerting the lawmakers that they were actually under investigation. In a statement today, Apple revealed, quote, the subpoena sought customer or subscriber account information for 73 phone numbers, 36 email addresses, and that the NDO or non-disclosure order was extended three times. That's a gag order, each for a year. And that means the company was forbidden to disclose what the government took from them. Uh, we don't begin to know how wide this goes. Um, we've asked uh, yes. the Justice 
for a complete list of who was subpoenaed, whose family members, whose children. We haven't gotten that list. The development follows a series of revelations about the Justice Department secretly obtaining records from journalists, including CNN's Barbara Starr, as well as reporters from the Washington Post and other news organizations. And while the data didn't tie the committee to the leaks during then Attorney General Jeff Sessions' tenure, William Barr moved a prosecutor from New Jersey to the Maine Justice Department to work on the Schiff-related case and others when he became Attorney General the following year. Three people with knowledge of his work told the New York Times. I'm horrified to see this, and it's not for a lot of the reasons others have said. I think the Department of Justice has every right broadly to investigate crimes. But knowing the people who received these um, who received these subpoenas or whose records were sought through these subpoenas, I find it very hard to believe that there was any legitimate and real and credible evidence that would have led a objective prosecutor to issue these grand jury subpoenas. And that means that it was a purely political hatchet job, if that's accurate. I think we've shown through two impeachments a willingness to hold Donald Trump accountable. Donald Trump thinks he's going to be reinstated in August. He's running for a re-election in 2024. You have a number of wannabe Donald Trumps who are just as corrupt and probably more competent. And so if we don't take steps to make sure this doesn't happen again, uh, we could really see the erosion, the complete erosion of the rule of law in our country. In a statement Thursday evening, Schiff said, and I quote, the politicization of the department and the attacks on the rule of law are among the most dangerous assaults on our democracy carried out by the former president. Though we were informed by the department in May that this investigation is closed, I believe more answers are needed which is why I believe the inspector general should investigate this and other cases that suggest the weaponization of law enforcement by a corrupt ex-president. It's you know really norm within norm within norm being broken here. Uh, the first most important norm post-Watergate is the president of the United States does not get involved uh, in particular cases uh, at the Justice Department, doesn't urge the Justice Department to investigate particular people. That's one very important norm. Beyond that, the President of the United States doesn't uh, urge the department to investigate his political adversaries or his political enemies. That is even a more uh, uh, important norm. Uh, and then uh, I think even beyond that, you have the specter of a president who is himself under investigation by our committee calling for an unprecedented uh, subpoenas, unprecedented subpoenas for account information pertaining to members of Congress, to staff members, to family members, even to a minor child. Uh, and that that is, I think, a terrible abuse of power. Uh, it violates, I think, the separation of powers. Uh, but it also makes the Department of Justice just a fully owned subsidiary of the president's personal legal interests and political interests. This is a major big fucking deal, folks. In 1971, Nixon had his plumbers. They broke into buildings and bugged the DNC. They got caught. It led to Watergate and brought down an administration. In 2018, Donald Trump had Bill Barr subpoena phone records to do the same thing. 
He also got caught, but that's where these two tales diverge. Trump has yet to really be held accountable for anything illegally done during his administration. If you say impeachment, that is a political process. This is clearly more serious than the than the, than the abuses of the Watergate uh, era that President Nixon was trying to protect a particular incident uh, and abusing his power to do so. This is a broader assault, I think, on our on our democracy. This is seeking uh, subpoenaing records. We think without uh, legitimate cause of the representatives from a co-equal branch of government. Uh, and it is a kind of aggressive pursuit of reporters uh, who the administration sees as their, their critics uh, that beyond, I mean, we've seen these disputes before in previous administrations and leaks investigations. This is just more serious, more of a weaponization of the powers of their legal authority than I think we have ever seen before in our history. People need to start going to fucking prison. This is becoming ridiculous. I'm not trying to criticize the Biden administration or Merrick Garland here, but I want them to do their fucking jobs. And if Trump is too big a fish to drag in a court, then start with Bill Barr. At some point, we need to reckon with the damage that this man did to the Justice Department. I think the department needs to really clean house and look at all of these ways in which the department was abused and take corrective steps and implement new policies to make sure this doesn't happen again. This is what Donald Trump wanted. And this is why legal experts and people on both sides of the aisle say that the president of the United States should not weigh in about criminal investigations. And he should not talk about using the Justice Department to target a rival. Because if the Justice Department does something, it is seen immediately through that lens. We look at this and we say Adam Schiff, a constant target of Donald Trump, has his entire staff and one of the staff's children subpoenaed, has their information subpoenaed from Apple. This is exactly what the president said publicly and privately that he wanted. So now here we are today, more than six months after Trump leaves office, finding out about this. And what is the first thing that comes to mind? This is what Trump wanted. This is what he said. And you have to remember, this happened in a period of time in early 2018 in which the Justice Department was under immense pressure from the president. In the wake of the Times report, the Justice Department's internal watchdog, led by Inspector General Michael Horowitz, announced Friday that it would open review of the record seizures and Democratic leaders are standing up to their own probes. Today, Americans you know, who don't want to see their government uh, weaponized law enforcement against them because of their political beliefs. And I hope Trump supporters who fear Big Brother see that Donald Trump was the biggest brother we've ever seen uh, in our country. Democratic leader Chuck Schumer and, and Dick Durbin put out a statement today saying that the Judiciary Committee in the Senate will, quote, vigorously investigate this abuse of power. They say if Barr and Sessions don't agree to testify voluntarily, they will subpoena them. Unsurprisingly, Barr is already distancing himself from accountability on the extrajudicial moves taken during his tenure. Barr said that while he was attorney general, he was, and I quote, not aware of any congressman's records being sought in a leaked case. 
He added that Trump never encouraged him to zero on the Democratic lawmakers who reportedly became targets of the former president's push to unmask leakers of classified information. Wilson. Yeah, right, buddy. Keep lying for the fella. The pitchforks are coming out now. He told Politico that Trump was not aware of who we were looking at in any of the cases, Barr said. I never discussed the leak cases with Trump. He didn't really ask me any of the specifics. Lies made baby Jesus cry. This is a developing story, and as news continues to bubble to the surface, reactions are growing from dismay to disgust and revulsion. The common theme is that Barr was truly out of fucking control and knew what he was doing the entire time. Former Justice Department spokesman Matthew Miller said, First Comey, now Schiff. Clear that leak investigations are the way DOJ officials decided they could answer Trump's demand to target his political opponents while telling themselves they were just following the law. Without a doubt, more to come. My girl, my girl, don't lie to me. Tell me when did you sleep? And now for the main event. Today on Mea Culpa, we have the perfect guest to discuss the weaponization of the DOJ under Bill Barr, former SDNY prosecutor and CNN contributor Ellie Honig. His upcoming book, Hatchet Man, how Bill Barr broke the prosecutor's code and corrupted the Justice Department is one of those rare books written from the authority of a career insider that is impeccably reported and eminently sourced. He methodically takes readers into the Barr DOJ and illustrates the corrosive and toxic legacy of his tenure. This is no more evident than today's revelations. So let's not waste any more time here. Honig joins us on the day of the Times bombshell report on Barr and justice with pleas for Merrick Garland to stop standing in the middle like an institutionalist and start acting like a fucking prosecutor for whom democracy is actually on the line. So let's listen now to that conversation. So Ellie, I'm hoping that you could take us into your upcoming book, which drops July 6th, and it's entitled Hatchet Man, about the corruption of somebody who I absolutely fucking despise, Bill Barr. And since it's available for pre-order, let's see if the mea culpa listeners can do their part and order this essential book about corruption in the highest law office in the land. But what I'm really hoping, Ellie, as well, is that you can give us some dish on what we're going to learn in your book. Or maybe one major insight from my listeners that people don't already know. So, Michael, first of all, thank you for having me. Your listeners are going to love this book because I've come to interact with some of them from the first time I was on. I know that they are passionate about government, about politics and about law. And, And the main point that I make in this book is that Bill Barr corrupted the Justice Department, unlike any other attorney general we've seen. And we're all familiar with sort of some of the highlights or lowlights of Bill Barr's tenure. But a couple things. One, when you put them all together in one volume like this, it is really an overwhelming record of dishonesty, of lying to the public, of 
politicizing DOJ, of using DOJ as a weapon and a shield, depending on someone's political persuasion. And, and here's the thing that I think will surprise people to learn. People a lot of times ask why. Why did Bill Barr want this job? Why did Bill Barr twist the law? Why did he sort of reduce himself to the kind of things we saw him do, whether on the Mueller report, on Ukraine, on Michael Flynn, on Roger Stone, on down the line? We can talk about any of these incidents. But what motivated him? And one of the things that we found in researching this book is that Bill Barr really is what I call a culture warrior, meaning he is strongly motivated, not just by his legal beliefs, which are fairly extreme and, and a lot of times have been shot down by the courts, but he has this deeply held belief that the only way to run a society is with religiosity, with st- severe religious views of the world, Judeo-Christian views, as he phrases them, and that everybody else, the secular masses, the non-religious masses, are sort of this dim-witted group that needs to be controlled by powerful men. He has said this and written this early on in his career, as far back as the 90s. We found old things that he had written and said. And a lot of that ends up being reflected in, I think, the misconduct of his tenure as Donald Trump's AG. Bill Barr thinks that he and this small group of very powerful men have to impose sort of almost religious order on the world. And I think that's what really motivated him a lot of times in what he did as AG. Right. I mean, which to me reminds me of being that I have 21 hours a day that I'm spending at my home in home confinement. I get a chance to binge on all the things I didn't have a chance to watch. One of the shows that I watched, The Handmaid's Tale. And that's, to me, frightening because I could see somebody like Bill Barr doing exactly what goes on in this incredibly um, done drama where it's run by these men, these religious men that use the Bible for everything, including the usage of women in order to bear children because there's issues going on worldwide in terms of birth rate. Yeah, th- there is an element of that in Bill Barr's approach. He, in the 90s, wrote an article or gave a speech in which he rails against, and I quote, the homosexual movement. And he says that that is endangering all of our basic foundational principles. And later on, he he rails against non-religious people. And by the way, in Bill Barr's view, it's not just religiosity. It's only a very narrow, it's Judeo-Christian religious beliefs that he singles out as being the only right path for a society. And this start, this was sort of something that he articulated fairly freely when he was done being attorney general the first time in the 1990s. And that he didn't really play up. He tried to play down in the early days, but very late in his tenure as AG, it started to creep back in to the things he said. He says the lack of religiosity, he says, we need to retake that hill. We need to take, we meaning the Catholic church, essentially. He says that over and over. He says, we cannot backpedal off the battlefield. I mean, it's really alarmingly militaristic religious language from a person who was functioning as the attorney general of the United States. And by the way, He made these remarks in his official capacity. DOJ put these things on their website. This isn't like his personal side thing that he does. And I think you can see that in the way that he handled everything from the death penalty to the way he sort of viewed himself as the all-powerful person entitled to do whatever he wants to protect whoever he wants because he's part of sort of the privileged select few that needs to impose order on everybody else. And yet – He worked for somebody like Donald J. Trump, 
A guy who is absolutely, absolutely devoid of yeah. any religious conviction in his entire body. And he could yeah. stand in front of the church and hold up, as we all know what, what just <laughs> recently went on, hold up a Bible in front of a church. The man couldn't tell you a single thing that's written in the Bible. He has actually never, forget about read the Bible, he's never opened the Bible. I mean, not even just to peruse the pages. And when he sits there and he opens it, and he's like, oh, two Corinthians. Uh, no, no, you fucking idiot. No, that's, that's not how you describe the verse and the chapter. Right? It's not how things are done. I mean, the man is completely devoid of any religious conviction. And I said this on a recent podcast when I was talking to Reverend Al Sharpton. And I said what I found the most interesting, something that I didn't even know about Donald and the fact that he has no religious beliefs at all, is when he turned around and he was asked if there was anything that he would apologize or look to confess in church mm -hmm. for something that he has done wrong in his life. And his response was... I have never done anything wrong in my entire life that I would <laughs> wow. have to ask that I would have to ask God for forgiveness for. I mean, that's not just fucked up. That's sociopathic. Hi, folks. Michael Cohen here. And we've got an amazing sponsor for this episode. The Jordan Harbinger Show. Things can get pretty intense discussing American politics. So if you need a break from the news cycle and want to hear incredible storytelling that is both fascinating and actionable, you have to check it out. Download Thursday's episode with UC Berkeley psychology professor Dr. Keltner, who joins Jordan to talk about his book, The Power Paradox, How We Gain and Lose Influence. The show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests. And there are a ton of episodes you'll find interesting since you're a fan of this show, like the March 11th episode with Roger Atwood, who chronicles the lives of treasure hunters and why these rogue Indiana Joneses are stealing history. There's an episode for everyone, though, no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. Jordan's also done an episode all about birth control and how it can alter the partners we pick and how going on or off the pill can change elements of our personalities. The podcast covers a lot, but one constant is his ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. I promise you, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life, whether it's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity or just a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. We really enjoy the show, and we think you will as well. So search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I, I thought you were going to quote another incident when he held up that Bible outside Lafayette Square, and he was asked, is that your Bible? And do you remember his response? Actually, I don't. It's a Bible. He said, it's a Bible. It's like, yeah, we can see that it's a Bible. He couldn't even say that's, that's my Bible. Um, and I actually think that, you know, people sort of ask the question, well, but what was this dynamic between Barr and Trump? What did Barr see in Trump? I do not believe, based on his public actions and statements, that Bill Barr 
idolized or worshipped Donald Trump. I think Bill Barr was smart enough to realize what Donald Trump was and was not. And I, But I think what Bill Barr recognized in Donald Trump was a vehicle and perhaps an unwitting vehicle through which Bill Barr could implement his own semi-extreme views of the law, which have been rejected by many courts, and very extreme views of the social order. I think based on the way he acted and things he said, I think Barr looked at Trump and said, here's a guy who's power mad and, and who only wants to look out for himself. And as long as I scratch his back and cover up for him and you know, mislead the public on the Mueller report and Ukraine and everything else, he will be a sort of willing accomplice, maybe unwitting accomplice to me in implementing my sort of view of the way society ought to function. So I don't think Barr looked at Trump the way that, say, you know, Stephen Miller looks at him or or, or the, who's the Jason Miller, right? The current Miller, whoever it is, where he's this, oh, he's a wonderful person. I, I don't think Barr, um, you know, viewed him quite that way. I think he saw him as Here's a power mad guy that I can exploit and implement my own view of the world through. Well, first of all, it's both Miller sisters, right? It's Jason and Stephen right. Miller. So you were right about that. But, you know, when I first asked you the question, we were talking, you were talking about how Bill Barr, you know, basically weaponized this Department of Justice, you know, and so, and it really was not. It was Donald Trump who created the Department of Injustice. And, in line of, with your comment just now, Bill Barr became the unwitting idiot that went ahead and was petrified of Donald. Petrified. Why? I don't know. And instead of, run, instead of running that office with integrity like he was supposed to, he absolutely diminished the respect for that office to the point that Merrick Garland right now doesn't know whether he's in left field or right field. We're trying to find him and put him into center field. But I don't know if he's way off to the left field. He's way off to the right field. I don't know what the heck this guy is doing. But Donald, but Donald's weaponizing of the Justice Department, right, by Bill Barr allowing him to do it. One man, right, an autocrat wannabe is so destructive to our democracy that we are, myself included, all expecting somebody like Merrick Garland, who I was excited to see come into the office, thinking he was going to bring back the Department of Justice to give them the integrity that they're supposed to have. And he has not. I, Michael, so a couple things. First of all, I agree with you that there was using going on both ways. I already talked about how I think Barr used Trump. I also agree that Trump used Barr. And I think Trump looked at Barr as, here's a guy who's going to circle the wagons for me. And we all knew that in advance. Donald Trump knew that in advance. You and I knew that in advance because remember Bill Barr's audition memo, right? Six months before he got the job, it was obvious Sessions was a goner. This is, you know, six months before the, the midterm election. He writes this, Bill Barr writes this 19-page memo basically blasting the whole Mueller report, or it wasn't a report yet, the Mueller investigation. And Bill Barr in that document used the expression, he said, Robert Mueller's theory of obstruction of justice is, and I quote, Fatally misconceived, misconceived, meaning wrong, fatally, meaning like dead, done. This document, not surprisingly, finds its way to Donald Trump's desk. Donald Trump, of course, loves it because this is the biggest threat he's facing at the time. The Mueller report. Wow. I have my guy here. He's already said he's going to kill it or he's going to defang it. You know, that came up at Bill Barr's 
confirmation hearing, he tried to downplay it and poo-poo it, and he gave some mealy mouth responses, and he got through on a nearly complete party-line vote. And then what did Bill Barr do? Exactly what he had forecasted. He would do exactly what Donald Trump brought him in to do. And then Bill Barr took it even further when he jumped into the cases of Roger Stone and Michael Flynn, and you know that. And Michael, I I actually wonder how you feel, because in the end balance – All the people who got either pardoned or commuted or had Bill Barr jump in to help them were all the people who were prosecuted by Robert Mueller, except for two of you, really, you and Rick Gates, the two who were willing to step forward and cooperate or talk to prosecutors. And to me, that was such a giveaway because the theory, what they put out there was, well, we don't believe in this investigation. We think this whole investigation was crooked and witch hunt, blah, 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 all that crap. But if that's the case, they would have they would have jumped in for you and for Rick Gates, too. And the the fact that they didn't tells me that this is purely payback, you know, positive for those who kept quiet and negative for those who did. Of course it was. I mean, look to look at really what I was brought in about. I was brought in about a payment to Stormy Daniels that was done at the direction of and for the benefit of Donald J. Trump. The SDNY then goes ahead. They had about a dozen sealed indictments. And Kushner's father, Charlie, is running around telling everybody, we have a lot of mutual friends, my son's going to be indicted. My son's going to be indicted. I can't believe, you know, it'll be both of us. My son's going to go to prison. And And then all of a sudden, these indictments just get shredded. And the SDNY with his fucking asshole, Jeffrey Berman, right, turns around and now they drop the entire ordeal claiming that there's not enough information within which to bring an indictment against Donald, Alan Weisselberg, Kushner, Don Jr., this one, that one. And everybody should be scratching their heads right now and saying, why? Why? What is it about Donald Trump that gives him this Teflon coating that nobody wants to stand up? Nobody wants to stand up and fight him. Why is David Pecker who's actually the one who paid Karen McDougal. I just looked over documents to make sure that Donald was protected by it, and I get charged with it. Now, you know as a former SDNY guy, when they want you, they put the full court press on you. And unless you're somebody, you know, like... Bezos or Gates or Elon Musk with billions of dollars that you could fight this off and you don't particularly care if they're going to indict your wife as a co-conspirator, then you have no choice but to plead. And that's why my case was 48 hours from start to finish. Let, let me um, let me join you on some of your critique of the SDNY. And, and this is my old office. I was a prosecutor there. And I, you know, look, some of the stuff about they indicted or they were ready to indict Jared. I don't know anything about that. You, you know, <laughs> you, you can have that. And Jeffrey Berman is a guy I don't know either personally. But I will say this. I will critique my old office in the following respect. The fact that the only person they ever prosecuted for the entire hush money payments was you, was Michael Cohen, is to me utterly inexplicable. And let's I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by that. Let's take Michael Cohen and Donald Trump out of it. OK, let's just say lawyer and powerful person. OK, lawyer is you. And, but, but, you know, generic lawyer, generic, powerful person. If somebody had come to me when I was a unit chief there and said, hey, boss, we didn't call each other boss, but just for the, you know, hey, boss, I have this case and we think that the lawyer did something really bad for the powerful person. Here's what I want to do. I want to charge the lawyer. And there were other people involved, too. I want to charge the lawyer. He's willing to take a plea. And 
when he gets sentenced, I want to go out of my way in his documents to say that he acted for and at the direction of powerful person. But, boss, I don't want to ever charge the powerful person or anyone else. I would say, as the supervisor, are you kidding me? We don't do business that way. If you're going to charge this crime, we're going to charge everyone who's responsible for it. And we are most definitely not going to just pick off a lower level player in it or a facilitator of it and ignore the people who he was acting for and at the direction of. And we especially are not going to take what's kind of a cheap shot that the person can't defend themselves and just sort of drop notes into the sentencing materials for the lower level players saying other more powerful people were really behind this and never charge those more more powerful people. I don't think any SDNY person uh, alum would tell you that that's the way we would have done business. So what happened here? We don't know the full story. I don't know the full story. I suspect that there were people, if I know the mindset of the ground level SDNY prosecutors, which I was one, they the, the, the ethic there is you, you get everybody. And in fact, it's a little embarrassing to only get the low level players. You want to get the bosses, whether it's in a corruption case, a mob case, whatever. And that something came in, someone made a decision of we're going to take Michael's plea. And then maybe after that, maybe before that, but someone made the decision of that's as far as we're going to go. And, and I criticized them for that. Yeah, and that you did. Well, let me just move on for a second, because I could sit and spend at least yeah. the rest of the hour criticizing <laughs> Jeffrey Berman, who's now over at Freed Frank. I could sit there and criticize uh, Robert Kazami that's now over at Guggenheim Partners. I could sit there and criticize some of the other line people that two went to Lowenstein Sandler, two went to Davis Polk, or what on the biography. Successfully prosecuted, biggest case of 21st century, U.S. versus Michael Cohen. That's on their biographies. And you sit there and you say to yourself, what? Let me tell you something. And anybody who's listening to this podcast, if I held a gun or a bat, to your loved one's head, and I told them, you plead guilty, otherwise X is going to happen. I guarantee you 99 out of 100 are going to capitulate and do exactly what I did, because there was no way in the world I was going to allow my wife, you know, we're married 26 years, there was no way in the world that I was allowing my wife to end up getting, you know, beaten up by the SDNY, when after four and a half months Having my lawyer ask them every single day for a meeting to be rejected, finally until a Friday night at 530 to find out you need to be in by Monday or we're coming to pick you and your wife and pull you both out of the apartment and we're going to charge you on an 85-page indictment. That's not fucking right. That's not America. And I don't care. I know the Southern District of New York thinks that they're the sovereign district and that they have this unlimited power. That shit's just wrong to do to anybody. But this was so political. It was all about being able to. And I believe Trump was involved in this. I believe that the message that went to Jeffrey Berman. Here's a little known unknown tidbit. Do you know that Jeffrey Berman recused himself of my case? Do you know why? That's well. Do you know why? I am. I believe the the, and I have a couple questions for you. I believe because Trump was the U.S. attorney who nominated. No, it's him, because right? was it, no, was it no, it's that? because his brother had a business relationship with David Pecker, and he decided to recuse uh, himself. Yeah, most people don't know that. Okay. Sure. So the guy, no, so the guy who's actually setting up these payments, the guy that's responsible for even my knowledge of the Stormy Daniels affair, he, he gets immunity. Alan Weisselberg gets right. immunity. Everybody gets immunity. 
because of what? I produced an NDA and because I paid it. And no, folks, I did right. not, Let me ask I did this, not mortgage I, I, my house I'm in, in order to make the payment. The money was sitting at First Republic Bank. So I'm interested in your theory. Is, is your theory that you were singled out because people wanted to blame you or that the SDNY went after you because they were hoping to flip you and make cases against bigger people. Well, they didn't need okay, there was a big difference and they didn't need to flip me in order to get the information. I offered them the information. I just wasn't right. doing it under a cooperation, a 5K1 agreement because I did nothing wrong. And I wasn't going to sit there and I wasn't going to do what they wanted to do. You ask me any question that you want, I will give you the answer and I will give you the information, any documentary evidence that I have in order to support my claim. But they didn't want it that way. They wanted it their way. They wanted to know that when I was five years old, I actually took a Tootsie Roll from the five and dime store. I ate it and I don't think we paid for it. And that's a crime, right? That I shoplifted at the age of five. Do you? Th- I'm, I'm curious. Do you think that if you had gone to trial, let's say let's say finances weren't an issue and let's say there was no pressure put on your family members and you were able to go to trial on the hush money crime, right? The, the campaign finance crime relating to the, the hush money payment and you went to trial and you had good representation. Would you be confident that you would have beat that case that you would have gotten not guilty on the hush money on the hush money on the hush money payment? Yeah, I would have been I probably would have been guilty. You probably yes. would have been guilty. However, okay, that's interesting. However, would, uh, yeah. what I will say is all of the other. Items that right, I had the to tax. tax. There was, I don't want to go down right. your tax. So I'll, I'll, look, I'll, I'll I'm more than happy. I, 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 know, I know how you feel about your tax charges. Because they're all bullshit and so yeah. is the HELOC. But you know what? <laughs> Again, now you got my blood pressure up, you son of a bitch. Um, so El- Sorry, buddy. That's all right. <laughs> Ellie, let me just keep moving on. Don McGahn's testimony. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to get you back for that one. I should actually take a break now. Go get some <laughs> blood pressure medication because this thing really <laughs> boils my, it boils my ass. Like you have no idea. I like idea. to rile up the host. Yeah, well, Michael. thank you. I like to rile up yeah, the host. And, <laughs> yeah, folks, um, remember, yeah, hatchet man, sure. Anyway, so, uh, Ellie, Don McGann, <laughs> Don McGann's testimony revealed a ton of abuses that have been alleged or detailed in the Mueller report. Now that these things are on record and Trump refuses to fade into the woodwork, why aren't these abuses being investigated by Merrick Garland and our current Department of Justice? You are preaching to the choir, my friend. Um, first of all, I don't agree with the word revealed. I would say confirmed because the crazy thing about this situation is we've known exactly what Don McGahn has had to say for over two years. It's been over two years since the Mueller report came out. And the fact that this is only happening now, McGahn's testimony, two years later, long after Trump is out of office and, you know, is attributable to so many failures and so much misconduct. And let, let me let me lay it out for you who I blame. The fact that this has taken so long. Number one, of course, is Donald Trump, because he's the one who told Don McGahn to fire Bob Mueller and then to lie about it. Number two, Don McGahn, because he could have come forward. He could have testified. He didn't. He hid instead. Number three, Jerry Nadler, because Jerry Nadler took four months to even take this case to court. Number five, Bill Barr, the, you know, our guest of honor here tonight on a, on a couple of respects. A, because he lied about the Mueller report. B, because he put up this bogus legal defense of absolute immunity that McGahn could decline to testify in Congress if he wanted. Now, the courts shot that down. It ended up being bounced back and forth on appeal. But what did they do? They dragged their feet. They dragged this court case out until the middle of 2021 to the point when when you ask what's going to happen, what are the consequences? Okay, 
Congress isn't going to – Jerry Nadler tried to act like it was some big victory. Wow, we finally got McGahn to testify. I mean, all he did was give voice to the same things he had already said to Mueller with a couple new sort of details and that kind of thing. Congress isn't going to do anything about it. They're obviously not going – nor should they impeach a third time, you know, six months after that. That's silly. And so who am I looking at? I'm looking at Merrick Garland, just like you are, Michael. And Merrick Garland has, has a lot of decisions to make here about what to do with Donald Trump. And Merrick Garland has – He's good with the rhetoric. He knows what to say. And he went in front of Congress just the other day and he said, nobody's going to get treated any better or any worse because of who they are, because of how powerful they are, because of how, how because of their politics. Here's my question. Does that apply to Donald Trump? Because you have a report by special counsel that lays out in detail at least potential obstruction of justice. You have now testimony from Don McGahn the other day. That amplifies that obstruction of justice. And I'm not even getting into Ukraine and January 6th and all that. If if Merrick Garland thinks he's playing it straight by just sort of breezing past Donald Trump and whistling in the wind and, you know, la-di-da, hopefully nobody really notices or calls me to task for it, then he's not doing his job. He's not doing his job. And I'm not saying he has to go out and send the FBI out to arrest Donald Trump today. What I'm saying he has to do is open a meaningful, real criminal investigation to scrutinize all the facts in the law. Thus far, there is no public indication that any meaningful investigation like that has been undertaken. And and if not, then I think it's a fail. Well, it's a major failing. And there's actually a congressman that I've spoke to recently who turned around and said to me, for example, with the unconstitutional remand of me by Bill Barr back to prison because I wouldn't not agree not to have a podcast, not to publish my book, not to speak to the media, right? What, what, what happened to what happened to that investigation? Uh, he this congressman asked for yeah. all the four. He put a FOIA request in for all of the documents still hasn't gotten it. And I spoke to him a couple of days ago and I said to him, either you're full of shit, you're lying to me and that you didn't put the FOIA in or there's something wrong with the whole system. Because if I had that congressional pin on, rest assured and working for Trump in the way that I used to, I would walk into that FOIA office and I would say, you come over here. Here's my FOIA request. You're not leaving this building until I have every document that I'm asking for. I'm a congressman and I need to do my job and you're impeding my job. And if you continue to impede my job, I'm going to I'm going to turn around. I'm going to have you. I'm going to have you arrested. How's that? Right. What they what they did, what they did to you with that waiver um, was an outrage. And and I said it publicly at the time and and I'll I'll say it again here. And, you know, it's sad to say. It didn't even make it into my book because Bill Barr has so many different abuses of power. And I've not seen anything directly linking Bill Barr to it, although would it surprise me? No. But the fact that they literally imprisoned you because you declined to waive your First Amendment rights is really to me – and Michael, you know I don't always agree with you and you know you and I go back and forth a lot. But but I I really feel like what they did to you there is one of the most sort of underrated – abuses of Trump and Barr's time in office. Well, let's go back to Merrick Garland for a second, where you said, you know, Merrick Garland made a claim that powerful and not everybody's going to be treated the same. I'm calling bullshit on that one. All right. So, for example, Merrick Garland the other day during a press conference turned around and was very upset. Somehow or another, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Warren Buffett and a bunch of other tax documents or banking documents were somehow released to ProPublica. And this is an outrage Mm -hmm. to Merrick Garland. And 
It should not have happened. I totally agree. It should not have happened. But you know who else that happened to? Me. By a guy named Jonathan Fry, an IRS agent out of the San Francisco office, went ahead at the request of Michael Avenatti, whether he paid him or not, I don't know the answer, went ahead, pulled out my, my documents, and they gave them to Ronan Farrow, who ended up writing about it. Now, not only was it my documents that they pulled out, it was a Michael Cohen from Israel and another Michael Cohen from Toronto, Canada. So all of our banking information, all of our, um, all of our private confidential information was taken off of the FinCEN system, the Financial Crimes Network, the most guarded system in Washington, and it was released. But I don't see Merrick Garland now worrying about Michael Cohen. Why? Because I'm broke now? That doesn't, that doesn't mean well, I'm entitled I, to my rights? Only to guys like and, Jeff and, Bezos or yeah. Musk or Warren Buffett or Bill Gates or whoever else is that they took? Only they're entitled? Weekday mornings, the story begins in California. The Times, a daily news podcast from the Los Angeles Times, gives you a West Coast perspective on the story shaping policy and opinion. Join host Gustavo Ariano and a diverse range of voices every weekday morning as they cover the critical issues like only a team reporting from California can. From immigration to income inequality, climate change to racial justice, nativism to technology, the Times explores the contradictions and hard truths of the Golden State and the nation through a West Coast perspective. This is an amazing podcast, like The Daily, but with a uniquely SoCal flourish. And no one is more perfect than Gustavo Arellano, who is an institution within Southern California news. Through interviews and original stories, The Times, Daily News from the L.A., Times is the podcast you need to understand the world and how California shapes it. Because if an issue that's in California isn't in your town yet, Chances are it will be soon. Expect award-winning reporting, hard-hitting investigations, and L.A. eccentricities from the biggest newspaper west of the Mississippi. New episodes of The Times are available every weekday. To listen and subscribe, go wherever you get your podcasts and search for The Times, daily news from the L.A. Times. Look, folks, federal laws limit your liability in the event of credit card fraud. But there aren't the same safeguards when it comes to your retirement account. And many people have a lot to lose in their retirement account. Take steps to protect it by enabling two-factor authentication, consolidate retirement plans, update your password, and check your account frequently. We do a lot more online these days. Your information is out there, exposed. Unfortunately, cybercriminals are always looking for ways to take that information. The all-in-one protection of Norton 360 with LifeLock makes it easy to have protection in the digital world. Device security blocks cyber criminals from stealing personal information. VPN to help keep information you send over Wi-Fi safe. LifeLock identity theft protection monitors your personal information and alerts you to potential threats. Now, no one can prevent all cybercrime and identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses. But if you have Norton 360 with LifeLock, you can opt into cyber safety. So sign up today and save 25% or more off your first year by going to Norton.com slash Cohen. 
That's 25% off Norton 360 with LifeLock at Norton.com slash Cohen. You know, one of the things that people are saying about Merrick Garland is that he is, and I quote, an institutionalist. Now, I don't know exactly what that Neither means, but if it means, if it means he's just sort of taking the easy way out, which it's starting to look like, then I don't accept that. And we had a decision earlier this week where uh, Merrick Garland took up the defense of Donald Trump in court, uh, picking up on a ridiculous decision that Bill Barr made to defend Donald Trump against defamation claims made by E. Jean Carroll, right? And people know the story. Of course, E. Jean Carroll publicly alleged that Donald Trump raped her in a, in a department store in the 1990s. Donald Trump called her a liar and said she's, quote, not my type, which is a uh, sickening thing for any president to say. E. Jean Carroll sued for defamation. Um, Trump actually did not have DOJ involved until he started getting his ass kicked in court. And and the state courts were rejecting all of his motions and setting him up to the point where he was going to have to provide a DNA sample and give a deposition. At that point, only at that point, does Trump ask Bill Barr's DOJ, hey, I'd like you to take up the representation because it's something I did in my official capacity. And Bill Barr made the ridiculous determination that, yes, we will represent you because it is part of your official capacity. Let me just pause here for a second. It is important that DOJ represent federal employees if they get sued for something they did on the job. I used to benefit from that. I was told it was always explained to me. If someone sues you as a prosecutor because you charge them, DOJ will take up your defense. But if you get in a car accident or a bar fight, no, DOJ will not defend you because that's not part of your job. So where does a president allegedly defaming a person who's accused him of sexual assault? fall within the presidential duties. Well, well, Bill Barr said, yeah, that, that's part of the gig. I went nuts about it at the time. Judge Lewis Kaplan on the SDNY, who I don't, I don't know if you know, Michael, but brilliant, hard-hitting judge also rejected that. He said, look, of course, any official is entitled to representation by DOJ for things they do on the job, but allegedly defaming a rape victim is not part of the job. And then Merrick Garland comes in and he continues the appeal of that, which is, to me, inexcusable, inexplicable, and really irresponsible. And I think the problem for Merrick Garland is he wants to maintain the status quo. And he's decided that any precipitous move I make, I need to keep clear of the political wins. But if you're constantly dodging the political wins, then you're not doing your job. You have to just do the right thing. And people say, well, you have to protect the president's right to do the job. Okay, but it's okay to say this is not part of the job or not part of the job. We will use taxpayer money to pay for the representation for. So there's been other instances over the past couple of weeks, but Merrick Garland is making very clear he is not the anti-Bill Barr. And I think his passivity is, is going to become, a re- has become, and will continue to be a real problem. It's going to be a real problem for Joe Biden, for Kamala Harris, and for the entire Democratic Party. They are absolutely blowing a great opportunity to ensure that more Democrats come into office and that the Republicans walk away from this Trumpism, this this Trump stranglehold over the Republican Party. And, you know, the, what you just said, you um, I mean, you said the exact same thing on your Rachel Maddow appearance. Uh, and 
you also then, in furtherance of that, you also said, I think he's failing to rise to the challenge that meets him as a result of taking over from Barr and the corruption that Barr put on the Justice Department. I mean, those are those are your words. Yeah. And I was thinking. Well, I didn't, I didn't to be clear, I, I, I didn't go on Rachel Maddow's show. That would have violated my contract with CNN. I think she retweeted my my something I had said on CNN. My, my apology. That's exactly what it was. <laughs> no, that's All right, OK. Good. I wanted you to lose your job. <laughs> I'm, you, I'm a huge fan of Rachel Maddow, but I'm, but. Different yeah, network. you know, yeah. I apologize. You're right about that. But you know, for me, right, what I'm thinking about is I'm as I'm was listening to your words and so on on the job, as you just said, there is no justification for what Donald Trump did on a routine basis. I personally, and I write about this in my book, Disloyal. I I believe that this entire country is suffering from Trump derangement syndrome from Trump fatigue. And I think Merrick Garland has a terrible case of Trump fatigue, that we just don't want to fight with this guy, yeah. right? I don't want him tweeting about, there's no more Twitter. I don't want him talking about, there's no more, there's no more outlet for him, right? I mean, the guy, the guy is now basically um, putting out his messages on an Etch-A-Sketch. That's how fucked up that the guy is. He has no social media platform other than the handful of sycophants that are doing it on his behalf. And I will tell you, if it was on the job, then the answer would be right. But we all know clearly that it's not. And Merrick Garland picking up the mantle and running and protecting Trump, right, as the former president for this defamation claim. I think it's not just an insult to E. Jean Carroll. It's an insult to all of us. I think you phrase it in an interesting way, which is that uh, Garland has Trump fatigue or, or Trump shyness. You know, he's tr- trigger shy on Trump. I think he recognizes Merrick Garland. He's been around long enough, was a prosecutor, very accomplished prosecutor and judge to understand that if he is going to take on the Trump battle, whether on obstruction of justice or, or Ukraine or, or anything else, that is going to be difficult. That is going to be messy. That is going to be ugly. And I think he wants no part of it. I think he just wants to walk by it. But guess what? As a prosecutor. You don't get to do that if you're doing your job right. You don't get to say, eh, that's a tough fight. Let me go. Let me go pick on some tomato can. The next Michael Cohen. You know what I mean? But I also want to say this. This is important. There's obviously, you know, Donald Trump has a way of sucking up all the oxygen in any room. And one thing that I'm proud of about this book is I think it's the first book that really brings to task one of Donald Trump's primary enablers. Right. That really says because Donald Trump couldn't have done this all alone. He needed people around him. And you, you were one of these people before, you know, before you changed your life. He could not have done what he did without people around him who were willing and eager and able to help him. And Bill Barr, I think, is at the very, very top of that list of people who saved Donald Trump's hide by lying to us about the Mueller report and, and sort of exploiting the way that the Mueller report was released. He saved Donald Trump's hide. He twisted the truth for Donald Trump. He, he promoted the election fraud lie before the election several times. Um, I think Bill Barr goes to the very top of the list of most destructive Trump enablers. And people like Bill Barr and others need to have their comeuppance, too. There needs to be a record about what they did. And, and that's one thing. One of the things I aim to do in my well, book. Well, look, and I look forward to it, um, you know, to the pre-order and to the release. But I don't know if you know this. Do you know who the, f- the single most quoted individual witness to the Mueller report was? <laughs> Let me guess. So uh, I'm guessing the way you've asked it, that it's nope. you. Um, nope. <laughs> OK, OK, hold on. Th- oh, good. So this is interesting. So it's not you. The single most quoted witness. Um, I- I- my mind is going to McGann, but McGann 
was sort of in a few very dramatic instances, like when Trump told him to fire Mueller and and to falsify the report. Um, I'm going to no, say no, McGahn. And you, and you would be know. right, because it was Don McGahn. Okay. I was actually the second <laughs> most quoted witness, to which when I was okay. at my sentencing, two individuals, two really respected, decent individuals, and I didn't get along with them at first at all. And even towards mm-hmm. the end, it was very... Um, it was very distant. There were, they got up and they yeah. told Judge William H. Pauley III that every single thing Michael Cohen told us was truthful and relevant in order for us to finalize this investigation. And I truly believed that when I was talking to the entire Mueller team, that the information that I was providing them would ultimately be in the annals of history as things that you cannot allow to happen in order to sustain a democracy. It was supposed to set the record straight. And it was, of course, completely ignored by Judge Pauly, right? There was no benefit, you know, to me in providing over 100 hours worth of of testimony other than for myself and for the country's future. But this report, the point, the reason I bring this up, this report is not taken in light of the way it should be taken. And not enough people have actually read the report and know all of the, yeah. the intricacies that went on and all of the illegalities and improper behavior going on in this Trump administration. And for that, I'm actually angry at myself for even participating. Because, okay, they put out a report. That report went nowhere and it produced no benefit in terms of what it was designed to do. The number one reason that report was a dud and did not resonate like it should is Bill Barr. And I mean that in a couple of ways, Michael, because everyone knows that Bill Barr lied to the public about what was in that report. Bill Barr, and let's remember the timeline, so, because it's more than that. Bill Barr gets this report. He's the first human being basically outside of Mueller's team to see this report on a Friday, March 22nd. You know, you remember how long it took him to purportedly read and digest this whole 448-page single-space report with thousands and thousands of names and dates and specifics and decide no obstruction? Do you remember how long? Yeah, two two days. days. On Sunday, two days, he comes back and he says, no obstruction, We're do- basically we're done here. But then here's even more devious things that Bill Barr did. That you know, As I was researching this book, I kept going, oh my God, you're right. It's even worse than we remember. Two things. So first of all, at some point after that, Robert Mueller writes a letter to Bill Barr saying, hey, man, you, you, you misrepresented my report, right? You, you know, the, the facts, nature and circumstances. The thing is, we didn't know about that letter. And then Bill Barr goes in front of Congress a couple weeks later and he's asked specifically by a member of Congress. I think it was uh, Chris from Florida. He says, has any member has, has any member of Robert Mueller's team expressed any concern to you about your, your four page letter? And Bill Barr leans right into that microphone and he goes, no, now. We learned a couple weeks after that that he'd already received this letter from Mueller saying, you're getting it all wrong. So right there, Bill Barr just bold-faced lies into the microphone. And then let's not forget this. Do you remember how long Bill Barr held on to that report because he claimed he was doing, quote unquote, redactions, which a federal judge later found was bogus, a Republican appointed federal judge. Bill Barr held on to that report. After declaring no obstruction while Trump and everyone else did their victory tours and said no collusion, no obstruction, and that sort of became the impression of the public. You know how many days – do you remember how many days it was before we and the public and Congress actually saw Mueller's report? Yeah, I think it was like, what, two months or something like that? 
27 days, basically a month, right? And th- during that time, Bill Barr's dishonest view took hold. And in the meantime, by the way, Bill Barr did a mini PR tour. Uh, he testified in Congress. He did a press conference. And then only after about a month of this did Bill Barr release the actual report, which when we all saw it, we went, what the hell? This is, you know, obviously he lied. Obviously he spun it. But by that point, it, it was too late. You, you know, the horse was out of the barn and it, it's, you can't reverse a month's worth of first impressions from people. So I totally agree with what you said right there, Michael. And I think that the, the primary person to blame is Bill Barr yeah. with, with a silver medal to Robert Mueller, by the way, for failing to clearly say, I do find that this would be a, we can't charge the sitting president under our policy. But I do find this is obstruction of justice, which he should. have. Yeah. Been. And I find what's really sad is the fact that Merrick Garland, in my opinion, is allowing Cyrus Vance Jr., our New York City district attorney, as well as Tish James, our phenomenal attorney general here in New York, um, to take the lead on this. Because I do believe that Trump and others will ultimately face the judge, but not on these federal charges that they should. And I believe that he's just stepping back and allowing them to take the to take the lead in it when that's not my opinion, what should be going on here. I think that he should be doing his job. I think we were all excited to have an active attorney general that was going to bring back some um, recognition and some honor to this Justice Department of Justice. But, you know, Ellie, I want to switch gears for a moment and talk about another one of my least favorite individuals, Rudy, Rudy the asshole Giuliani. Now, you recently wrote, and I quote, at some point, it seems Rudy Giuliani decided he could do whatever the heck he wanted without consequence. As new audio emerges, we'll see how long that holds. Now, if you would discuss with me in the myriad of scandals, investigations and revelations, what you think that they'll find on Giuliani in those tapes. And ultimately, as I believe he will, in some Shakespearean endgame, take down Trump to save his own ass. So a couple things about Rudy Giuliani. And again, I write about him in the book. Um, and I, and I talk about this in the book as well. There is a, if you're ever inside the SDNY's building, which I don't know, maybe you were, Michael. Did they interview you inside the building or yes. some offsite? No, in yeah. the building. It, I'm sure they didn't let you on the eighth floor where the U.S. attorney sits. But if you were up there, come on, I'm giving you a hard time here. Um, if you were up there, you would see there is a wall of portraits of U.S. attorneys going back to the 1800s. I mean, the office was founded in the late 1700s. And Rudy, of course, is up there because he ran the building from 83 to 89. He ran the SDNY. And I will tell you, Michael, when I started at the SDNY in 04, we were proud of Rudy. My colleagues and I thought it was cool that we worked at the office that Rudy, this is, you know, three years after, two and a half years after 9-11, he was a respected guy that that we were working at the same office that Rudy had once run. Now I will tell you that the man is a disgrace to the SDNY. I'll speak for myself and say that I'm embarrassed to share that affiliation with Rudy Giuliani. When I said that Rudy has taken is, is sort of has reached this decision that he can do whatever he wants with no consequences. There are a lot of people out there, a handful of people out there at least, who are trying to be mini Trumps and are trying to handle every problem they may have by going on the attack and saying everything about, uh, against me is politicized. Everyone, everything is a witch hunt. And Rudy is doing it. Matt Gates is doing it. And they all think it worked for Trump or it's worked for Trump thus far. It'll work for me too. What are they going to find on Rudy? Look, we can't know for sure, but Rudy's got problems. And 
it appears the SDNY is looking at him for a, what we call a FARA violation, Foreign Agents Registration Act, meaning he was acting on behalf of, if he was acting on behalf of Ukrainian interests, when he lobbied the government to try to get rid of Marie Ivanovich without registering. We know he didn't register. We know he lobbied. The only question is, was he doing that on behalf of Ukraine? Now, Rudy and people around him have said, oh, who cares? It's a paperwork crime. You didn't fill out a registration form. Who gives? I, get, I think the, con- the, the, the answer to that is, this is essential to our national security. We have to know who's lobbying our government because if they're secretly working for foreign governments or foreign um, nationals and they're not disclosing it, then we can be manipulated. That can be very dangerous. Here's my thing, though. If I'm in the SDNY shoes right now and all I have on Rudy is a Foreign Registration Act, Foreign Agents Registration Act claim, and we don't know if they do, you better bring more than that because that's not enough to win over a jury, I don't think. If that's your only charge or your lead charge. Now, they've seized under a search warrant 18 of his devices or or people who work with him's devices, phones, computers, laptops. They have a ton of information on this. You went through this whole process, Michael. Same special master, right? They got Barbara Jones back. So they're going to go through all this information. They're going to have just an enormous amount of information. It's important to people who understand this. Anything the SDNY finds in that search that's not privileged that they can look at, they can use, whether it relates to a Foreign Agent Registration Act crime or something completely different. So they're going to have a lot on Rudy. I think it's going to be a coin toss whether they end up with enough information to charge Rudy. I don't say that by way of apologizing to Rudy, but you know they're going to need the evidence to back it up, and we'll see if they come with that. Yeah, and don't forget, if they were successful in charging me and bringing the claim using what? Uh, the campaign finance violation. How do you compare campaign right. finance violation to a FARA act? What does my campaign violation have? National security implications? I don't think right. so. They're going to find a treasure trove of shit in his electronic devices because Rudy is as dirty as a fucking pig in a pig pen. And rest assured, they're going to pull the same squeeze play. Look, nobody at the SDNY has... A, a game plan any different than what they did to me, which then, of course, you know, brings me to my next question. And again, kind of like switching gears a little bit here because you're such a yeah. treasure trove of information. This episode is sponsored by Blue Chew. Say it with us, Blue Chew. Blue Chew is making waves and bringing more confidence to the bedroom by offering chewable tablets that can help men get stronger and longer-lasting erections. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, but in chewable form and at a fraction of the cost. Blue Chew's tablet help men achieve harder, stronger erections to combat all forms of erectile dysfunction. Blue Chew is an online prescription service, so no visits to the doctor's office, no awkward conversations, and no waiting in line at the pharmacy. And it ships right to your door in a discreet package. The process is simple. Sign up at BlueChew.com, consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once you're approved, you'll receive your prescription within days. The best part? It's all done online. Blue Chew's licensed medical providers work with you to find the right ingredient and strength for your prescription. Don't like swallowing pills? No problem here. Blue Chew's Sildenafil and Tadalafil tablets are chewable. Blue Chew's tablets are made in the United States of America, and they prepare and ship direct, so it's cheaper than a pharmacy. 
So if you could benefit from extra confidence when it's time to perform, visit BlueChew.com for more details and important safety information. And here's a special deal for our listeners. Try BlueChew free when you use your promo code COIN at checkout. Just pay $5 in shipping. That's BlueChew.com promo code COIN to receive your first month free. And we thank BlueChew for sponsoring this podcast. Give my listeners, if you would, a traffic report on the state of play of the current Trump criminal investigation. Because what, as I walk the streets of New York and people are constantly coming up to me and well, most people saying nice things, there's a handful of people that don't, but they all want quick indictments as a means of accountability. But these are also sprawling and very complex cases. With the grand jury testimony now of the controller, the assistant controller, Jeff McConney, where would you place their case in terms of movement up the ladder in the Trump hierarchy? And knowing that, how far out until they reach Weisselberg and then really begin to squeeze him? It appears to me that what they are trying to do is climb the ladder. Um, and the way as a prosecutor that you penetrate any closed secretive organization whether it's a business or, as I used to do, the, the Gambino family, the Genovese family, mafia families, is you start on the outside, you start with the lower ranks, and you try to flip people and work your way up the line. Sometimes you get lucky. Sometimes you'll have a wiretap and you'll catch a, a boss or a powerful person directly. But the classic way to do it is what we're seeing from the Manhattan DA right now. Because let's keep in mind, and it's important that people understand this, it's not enough for prosecutors to just show there was fraud at the Trump org, and well, of course, Donald Trump had to know he was the boss. You're going to have to have specific evidence tying him to specific fraudulent transactions, showing that he knew about them or authorized them. How do you get that? Let's assume there's no recording that we don't know of of Donald Trump. Let's assume there's no email or text, right? You, you know, he's not an email or a texter. Um, how are you going to get there then? Well, the best way to do it, if I'm assessing this case from the outside, who's in the inner circle? The only person really whose last name is not Trump is Wesselberg. How do you get to Wesselberg? You're going to have to leverage him. You're going to have to cr have a criminal charge on him. And this controller, McConney, looks like the best chance to get there. So I don't know anything about the quality of McConney's information. I don't know how damaging it is. But what it appears to me they're trying to do is, look, by putting him in the grand jury, they're giving him immunity, meaning we're not going to prosecute you, McConney, meaning either they don't think he did anything wrong or they're willing to sacrifice a charge on him in order to use his information to go against the bigger fish. So all indications to me are they are focused on exactly the right person, Alan Wesselberg. Will he flip? You probably have. I don't know the man. You do. Look, I've seen I've seen people refuse to flip on, you know, much less on. I've seen people charged with very minimal crimes that I expected to flip that just said, no, not going to do it. I've seen murderers, tough guys. Who, who I never expected to flip, who were willing to flip. So it's a very personal, unpredictable decision. I have no good sense of whether Weisselberg's willing to flip or not, but the stronger a case they have on him, if any, the more likelihood that he does flip. I don't know. What do you think about Weisselberg? Well, at least since this is your podcast and I'm going to allow you to ask me that question. <laughs> well, I mean, something that I, <laughs> I mean, listen, you know, these guys firsthand. This is well, interesting. I wanted yeah. to get your perspective. <laughs> I know my perspective. I believe Alan Weisselberg flips. And I'm going to tell you my reasons wow. why. First and foremost, I believe that Cyrus Vance, using Mark Pomerantz, as well as now with Tish James's office, are doing exactly what you would expect them to do. 
And that's to go for the low-hanging fruit and work your way up. Now, they have all the information. I have, as everybody knows, have been before the district attorney now 10 times. I have spoken to them for countless hours, provided them with documentary evidence uh, in order for them to use in their investigation and, uh, God willing, the ultimate conviction of all of these uh, fucking animals. So as it stands, the way I would, and I've said this on television before, the way that you have to look at what's going on with Trump Oregon, these investigations, is think of it like a bank, like a small bank. Donald Trump would be the president of the bank. Alan Weisselberg mm-hmm. would be the branch manager. And Jeff McConney would be the teller. So you know that you've never gone into a, a branch and then said to the branch manager, hey, would you deposit this check for me? Or hey, can you cash this check for me? Or can you make me a, a bank note or whatever it might be, a, a wire transfer? Right. So on? These are all done by the teller, by the assistant controller, Jeff McConney. Now, the question becomes, does McConney know what each and every one of the transactions are for and what was it about? The answer is right. more likely the answer is yes than no. We're a relatively small company. There were really 14, 15 yeah. executives of which McConaughey was a senior mm-hmm. vice president, not, not to the tune of an executive, but he was right there next to Allen in the office directly next to. And he was brought in on so many occasions to participate and to listen. Like, for example, he knew that the hush money payments to me were payback for the money, the retainer, allegedly, that they were paying me each and every month was basically my own money being given back to me over the course of 12 months. McConney knew the whole right, thing. Right. And he was, he was mm. sat in many of these type of meetings, including meetings um, between Allen and Donald or me and Allen or so on. So I think he's much more significant and more dangerous than people may actually think. Now, a lot of people ask me, why do you think Weisselberg will flip? He's been with Donald for 40 years. You know, he's, he, he's loyal. He's loyal. I think anybody that thinks that Allen wants to spend his golden years, like he's 73, 74 years old. He has no interest in seeing what happened to Michael Cohen being Michael Cohen right. 2.0, right? He has no interest in that. Not to mention both of his boys... Uh, Barry and Jack are now wrapped up into this Trump shit mess as well. And they're going to put the Mm. squeeze on Barry. They're going to put the squeeze on Jack. And they're going to put a financial squeeze on all of them that they don't have the money within which to defend it. So do I think Alan Weisselberg flips? Yeah, I do. I think Alan, I think any reasonable person would not want to see their children end up in prison with their father. And I do believe that Cyrus Vance, um, as well as Tish James, have no problem with sending all of them to prison for their illegal actions. And that's, that's my take on to it. And I pretty much so far have been almost 100% accurate on my predictions. And then I do ultimately believe that, you know, Donald, Don Jr., Ivanka, Jared, Eric, Weisselberg, I believe that they all will end up standing before a judge and they then will know what it feels like, you know, to have somebody else have full control over your destiny.
So, you know, look, uh, Ellie, as we're beginning to wind down the hour, I just have like two more questions for you. You know, I want to now move on to, and I'm not ranking first, second, third, meaning Bill Barr, Rudy Giuliani, or now Matt Gates as my first, second, third. I fucking hate them all equally. I think that they're three absolute pieces of shit, and each and every one of them I think is a fucking criminal and belongs in prison. And I'm not one who wants to see anybody in prison. I'm not like this guy, oh, lock him up, lock him up. That's Donald. But I think that these are three of the worst fucking human beings in this in this country right now. So let's move on now to Matt Gates, who really is just a, you know, a shithead of the GOP at this point. His America First rallies, where he basically taunts justice to charge him while spewing lies with Marjorie Taylor Greene. It's almost absurd if it weren't so frightening the way so many people lap up to his shtick, right? With this new possible obstruction charge, is the government trying to strengthen what was becoming a weaker case or rearing back for a knockout? If you would, assess for my listeners what's happening with Gates and will all of the smoke ultimately amount to a fire? I think there is a high likelihood Matt Gates gets indicted by DOJ. There's there's a lot we don't know. Of course, the, the man's not been charged with anything. He has the presumption of innocence. He's absolutely entitled to that. Based on what we know publicly, here's what we know. Joel Greenberg has flipped. Joel Greenberg has a, a horrible rap sheet. Um, he's going to be a very difficult cooperator for prosecutors to put in front of a jury. I've put murderers in front of juries. I've never put a confessed child sex trafficker and somebody who lied about another person by claiming they were a pedophile falsely in front of a jury. That is really, really difficult to do. However, he appears to be very strongly backed up by the documents. If you look at the paperwork that the prosecutors in Florida filed there on Joel Greenberg, they make sure virtually every fact that they assert, they don't just say Joel Greenberg told us this. They cite a text. They cite a financial record. They cite a photograph. So they have Joel Greenberg corroborated, as we say, backed up every which direction which they have to have. The reporting also is that Matt Gates's ex-girlfriend is cooperating. That is a bad sign for him. This obstruction of justice investigation is a big problem if they can bring home the evidence of it. A, it's a crime, of course, to obstruct justice. And if he got on the phone with a witness and suggested that she tweak her story or leave out a detail or omit a name or whatever, that's obstruction of justice. And the problem is not only can you get charged for that, But it makes you look guilty on all the other stuff. We call it consciousness of guilt. So the prosecutor will get to stand in front of the grand jury of the jury and say, well, why does a person obstruct justice? Why does a person try to influence a witness? Because they know that they're guilty. They know that they've done wrong. So I think that Matt Gates is likely to be charged by DOJ. Um, What are they doing now? I think they're building out and sort, sort of trying to shore up their charges to the extent possible because they're going to have a brawl on their hands. I mean, if they charge Matt Gates, <clears throat> he's going to go on the offensive. He's already on the offensive. He may well take them to trial and, and they better be loaded to bear to prove their charges. Okay. So let's jump back for a quick second and let's just break this down. We'll start with the last point, obstruction of justice. Here I go again, obs- inserting myself into the into this conversation regarding obstruction of justice. It is It's incontrovertible that Matt Gates, as I was testifying the night before that I was to testify before the House Oversight Committee, starts sending text messages in order to prevent me from testifying 
before the committee, which I was summoned to do. Now, yeah, that's obstruction of justice. It's witness tampering. Do we need to go any further than talking about that? Why again, Merrick Garland, if you're listening to my show, and I hope you are, or Lisa Monaco, or any of the other folks there at DOJ, why is this not part of an investigation? You know, I know I'm only one person, but I've been beaten up by this system, starting with the fake steel dossier, with all of the lies about me being in Prague and paying people off and hacking into the DNC computer, all the way to the unconstitutional remand of me back to prison. And there's about 80 items in between. Yeah, I want these documents to come out. I want those people that were responsible for it. I want them to feel the arm of justice, not just because it's for me, but because it's what our democracy is supposed to be all about. Why am I, as an American citizen, supposed to be targeted? Why is this guy Jonathan Fry? Why did he get probation for going on to the Finson system? And I could name 180 more items of lies, like even journalists who were making allegations that I told them that I went to Prague. I've never been in the Czech Republic. So, yeah, it's obstruction of justice, and everyone acknowledged it. But, oh, Matt Gates apologized. Right. It was actually Sean Hannity that apologized for him. But Matt Gates allegedly apologized. It's interesting that you raise that. I'd, I'd honestly forgotten about that. But of course, I remember it very clearly now. And I think when it happened, I was on set with CNN and D.C. and I said, boy, that sounds a lot like obstruction. Then I said, you know, when I used to try cases, sometimes what they would do is they would bring in tough looking guys, intimidating guys to sit in the well of the courtroom during a trial. And as I said that. We had footage up of Matt Gates. Remember, he wasn't even part of whatever committee it was, sort of striding through the committee room. I mean, I'm sure you weren't like physically intimidated of him. But um, I agree. I think that's actually an interesting point that he's got a bit of a history of trying to influence, shall we say, witnesses. So, look, it appears that the prosecutors have the cooperation from one of the women on that phone call when Matt Gates maybe obstructed justice. So. Uh, I would want to know what she has to say. But again, if he suggested that somebody keep quiet or maybe get the story straight or whatever, that could well be obstruction. And that should just be tacked on because it shows that he has an M.O., right? He has a modus operandi in terms of how he behaves. And then you take Joel Greenberg, you know, for a second. And I get this a lot. Mm -hmm. Oh, Cohen, you're going to be a very tough witness, you know, if they end up trying to use you because you're a convicted (laughs) liar. And I turn around and I tell most people that say that to me, why don't you go fuck yourself, right? Convicted liar. Let me tell you two different things when it comes to being a convicted liar. What I lied about was the number of times that I spoke to Donald Trump about a failed real estate project in Moscow. But you know who was involved in that document, the creation of that document, and then the ultimate release? Donald himself, Ivanka, Jared, Jay Sekulow, right? Um, Abby Lowell, a handful of people that were all part of a defense, um, a, a defense team in order to take a look at what was being written. They all made changes to the document, and yet I'm the one who's a liar? Really? 
Are we really worried whether I spoke to him three times or ten times? Is that really enough to charge somebody? And is that really enough to take me out of the, of the lane of credibility? And I tell them, I don't think so. And here's the most important so, thing. Yeah. Here's the most important thing. Something I realized when I was going to testify before the House Oversight Committee. I knew that every one of these, these spineless, scumbag Republicans that were sitting there were not going to ask me a single question. All they were going to do is try to attack me and attack my character because that was the Trump playbook, something I know very well because I wrote it. And so what did I do? (laughs) Every single aspect of my testimony was backed up by some form of documentary evidence, whether it was putting the pictures of the checks up that had Donald's signature on it, putting other checks up that had Don Jr. and Alan Weisselberg's signature on it, putting up his personal financial statements for the three years that I had in my possession at the time, and all other documentary evidence that was there. Newspaper articles about um, his devaluation of real estate tax and so on. And this is what I decided to do so that nobody can question my credibility because that, that's what they want to do, and that's how they think that they're going to avoid responsibility. But I believe that Joel Greenberg, who has the same issue of people questioning his credibility, if you have the documentary evidence, what's the difference? Yeah, you could be the worst scumbag on the planet. But if you have the documents to prove that this is what you're saying happens to be true, well, I don't know, sounds right to me. And, and that's the ball game w- when it comes to Joel Greenberg or any cooperating witness. First of all, I, I, I do not think it's fair to compare you to Joel Greenberg in any respect. Agreed. Because Joel Greenberg's even, I mean, way, way worse conduct. And even the, the perjury, the, the false statements part of Joel Greenberg's case involves falsely accusing another person of being a pedophile. That is way, way. I mean, you lied to, to, to cover up for a piece of Donald Trump. This this is no comparison to what Joel Greenberg did. And you're right. It all comes down to what you always say to a jury as a prosecutor with any cooperating witnesses. I'm sure you don't like Mr. and Mrs. Cooperator. You, you shouldn't like Mr. and Mrs. Cooperator. And it's not about whether you like this person. It's about whether you believe them. And when we talk about whether to believe them, the way the way you decide that is look at the corroboration. Is this person backed up? This person tells you there was a financial transaction. Here's a record that matches it. This person tells you there was a text. Here's the text. So that's really the crux of the matter when it comes to Joel Greenberg or, or any cooperator. Well, Ellie, again, thank you so much for joining us again. Remember, um, all mea culpa listeners, Hatchet Man dropping on July 6th. I'm looking forward to getting the book. I'm looking forward to reading it, even though once again, it's going to cause my blood pressure to spike. And um, there's no <laughs> doubt in my mind. I've read so many books while I was in prison, whether it was, you know, John Bolton's book, whether it was Anonymous by Miles Taylor and just 97 books. And I can honestly tell you, many of them um, really pissed me off and really got my blood pressure up while I was there uh, twice to the point I had to be hospitalized. So, yeah, I'm hoping that your book doesn't do the same, but I'm sure it's going to be a page turner and I'm looking forward to reading it. Thanks, Michael. Yeah, I I do think this book will infuriate people when they are reminded of what Barr did. But I also think it will uh, it it puts down an important marker because we have to remember. And I will say there's a there's definitely a sheer entertainment value to my book. I tell a lot of behind the scenes courtroom stories and trial stories about mob cases I did and some of the crazy characters. Most of the stories involve me 
getting yelled at by a judge or, you know, screwing something up and, and a lesson I learned. So there's a memoirish behind the scenes SDNY um, DOJ aspect to the book as well um, that I think puts Bar's malfeasance in improper perspective. But thank you for having me, Michael. I really appreciate it. Good to see it. you and stay strong, my friend. And now for today's mea culpa. The shocking and shameful news today is a reminder that true justice is often deferred for those who deserve it the most. I have been sounding the alarm about Bill Barr and his weaponization of the Justice Department for almost two years. Now, finally, that Barr's horrible, stubby little fingers have found their way into the med data of Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell, justice deferred can become actual accountability. I have stated many times on this show and in my book, Disloyal, how I was illegally targeted by Bill Barr's Justice Department for investigation as was my family. I have detailed the abuse of power related to their weaponizing of the Bureau of Prisons to silence me. All of this fell on fucking deaf ears. Okay, okay, so they took it all with a grain of salt because I was a convicted felon. I get it. But now that his own name and that of his family were also targets of the same malicious investigation, Adam Schiff needs to do something about this shameful attack on our democracy. I also want my own file released by the DOJ. I have filed Freedom of Information Act requests to get the entirety of their fishing expedition into my life, but have thus far come up completely empty. Enough is enough. Strong words from Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer just won't cut it anymore. The whole nation is watching. Trump is watching. What are you going to do about it? I ask again, what the fuck are you going to do about it? The whole world is watching. Now is the time to use the moral authority conferred upon them by these revelations to prosecute Bill Barr and prosecute Donald Trump. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Mea Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea Culpa, nothing but the truth. Hey, movie lovers, who needs a theater when you have Pluto TV? Grab your popcorn and your streaming device because free movies are here. Pluto TV is your home for movies. Great movies are playing anytime in over 20 exclusive movie channels of action, horror, rom-coms, and more. Watch hits like Saving Private Ryan, Pretty in Pink, and Charlie's Angels all for free. No signups, no fees, no contracts, ever. Download the free Pluto TV app on any device.